I'm Vic Singh, and you're listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that breaks down every episode of The Sopranos one at a time. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get shows. And if you like what we're doing, please spread the word. If you'd like a pictorial and caption companion to the podcast, follow at Pada Bing on Instagram. And as always, thank you for listening and being a part of this journey. Coming up is my conversation with Matt Servito. Matt played Agent Dwight Harris on the show. Matt called in from the city to talk about the show and his experiences on it. As likable as Agent Harris was, Matt was equally so. We discuss how he went from Detroit to Juilliard to The Sopranos and how the show shaped so much of his career and the culture at large. I really enjoyed talking to Matt and I'm very appreciative we were able to make it happen. Just a heads up, Matt's on the newest season of Billions coming out soon. That's all I got. So here it is, my conversation with Matt Servito. Matt, thank you for doing the podcast. My pleasure. I uh, very uh, it's been it's been interesting. A lot of uh, the show has been kicking around again, uh, especially here in New York and New Jersey with uh, the twentieth anniversary. So. Um, it, it's kind of a, a, a I don't know, it's, it, all of a sudden it's everywhere and I'm getting texts and emails and uh, from a lot of folks and there's like a whole new generation that's streaming it. So I'm meeting a lot of younger kids who like telling me, oh, it used to be my dad's favorite show and I'd roll my eyes. And now I'm like, oh my God, I love this show. And so it's uh, it's it's kind of fun. It's, I think we're all really enjoying the uh, the second life that's that's happening right now. Yeah, it's the nice thing about the the twenty year anniversary. It's coincided with this new generation of people that um, are getting to experience it for the first time. And I'm old enough that I actually saw it. Uh, I started late. I came to it around season three, and then I went back and caught up. But I watched the finale just like everybody did on the television screen when it went to black. And so, um, a lot of our listeners on the podcast are young and they're watching it for the first time. Uh, and so, one of the things we don't do is spoil it. The interviews kind of spoil things, but they're smart enough to know not to listen to an interview if they don't want the spoils, but the recaps we do are right. intentionally careful because um, I certainly would have never wanted that experience to be taken away. So so just real quick by way of foundation, where'd you grow up? How'd you get into acting? And then how did The Sopranos happen for you? Well, I grew up in Detroit. I was actually born in New York and raised in Detroit, Michigan, and uh, um, got into acting late in high school. I uh, was really thinking of you know many other uh, options in regards to a career, but a uh, theater teacher in high school just sort of encouraged me to at least uh, try for a scholarship to the local college, uh, Wayne State University in Detroit, got a scholarship, started there, and uh, then spent a semester abroad studying in England. And that's when I really fell in love with it, um, with acting, and came back to the States and decided, okay, I really want to be an actor. Of course, years later, I realized what I really wanted to be was a British actor um, because they were just so damn talented, so well-trained. So I decided there's got to be a program like that in the States that's just rigorous and going to kick uh, kick the Midwestern accent out of, out of me. And um, uh, so I just applied to a few schools, one of them being Juilliard, and I got waitlisted and was lucky enough to sneak in right near the end. And so that got me back to New York and my roots and my family here and Jersey roots, actually, because I was born in Teaneck, New Jersey. And um, but then 25 years in Manhattan. And uh, so once I got there, I never left. And I started in soap operas, um, doing a lot of daytime TV, all my children, one life to live as the world turns. 
um, and a lot of indie film, regional theater, just kind of, you know, 10 years of moving around a lot and uh, making, making a living. Um, and I re- remember I went in for, um, I get a call to go into audition for the role of Father Phil, um, the priest mm-hmm. in season one. And uh, I remember just going to some little room uh, on the Upper West Side. I can't even remember. I guess, I think, she, you know, uh, uh, same casting directors directors were involved. Uh, Sheila and Georgianne Walken, uh, Sheila Jaffe and Georgianne Walken. And just in a room, I think they put me on tape. I don't even remember if producers were there. And I, and I got very, I don't even know if I got any material. I sort of just had a general idea. It was maybe a mob-related television show, role of a priest. Didn't get it. Let it go. Uh, that was, I, I believe, for the pilot or for one of the early episodes. And then uh, a long time passes, uh, and I get a call to go in for the show, Sopranos, to play an FBI agent. I'm like, oh, yeah, I think I went in for, like, a priest on that thing or something. But, again, it still hadn't come out, so nobody knows what it is or really, you know, how, how good it is at this point. Um, and I um, went in and read, actually, again, for another role. I read for... Agent Grosso. They were looking for like an Italian FBI agent. Yeah. Um, and they want, and they, this role did get cast. Uh, but when I read for David Chase and the producers and David sort of looked at me, but at that point I was, it's funny cause I, that's when I'm looking at pictures of the 20th anniversary. Um, I was losing my hair. I used to look so Italian when I had a full head of hair, uh, very swarthy and, you know, uh, and I have Italian uh, roots, obviously it was last name Servito. By that point, I was balding, and David sort of looked at me and said, hey, would you come back tomorrow and read the role of Agent Harris? And I was like, sure, whatever. I mean, just another – at that point, there wasn't a huge differentiation in my mind in regards to the roles or uh, what they were going to be because it really was just one episode of yeah. this, this show called The Sopranos. So I um, came back the next day, read it, got it, and uh, it was a wonder. So I you know, I came to set. I, I knew – some of the actors, because it really was a great mix of New York character actors and nobody seriously famous on the show. So it's not like you come, some shows you come to set and like, oh my God, that's, what's his name? Or there she is. And no, this is a lot of like, you know, good New York people. We knew a lot of folks and a lot of hellos and highs. Did my one episode, couple scenes with Agent Grosso and Agent Harris coming to the Soprano house and confiscating their computers, uh, uh, different things in the house. Uh, to make it very clear that he's now under investigation. And that was it. And weeks go by, and I get a call to do another episode. And did that episode, and before that one was even done, they called me to come back and do another one. So in the first season, I did three episodes, and that sort of you know put me down uh, planted roots. But also, I began to realize that Agent Harris, I sort of lucked out that Harris became um, the character of the FBI that we were going to follow. At, like we would see the Sopranos sort of through his eyes, right. um, at least, at least from a legal standpoint, and um, and and really by season two or three, I sort of began to realize like what the show was and how successful it was and how lucky I was to be on it. Um, I mean, I knew the material was good. I knew there was good acting, good writing, but you know, who the hell knew if the critics? I I, I still tell the story of going to the rap party for season one and kind of saying hate everybody and sort of saying goodbye because i didn't think i didn't know if i would go on and i didn't know if the show was going to be successful i liked it a lot but i that that there's plenty of shows that i love that have never either never seen the light of day or you know die off in the first season but 
I thought, I said to my wife, I really like this show, but I don't know if America is going to like it. It's kind of a very idiosyncratic, very specific genre. Um, but I think once I realized it wasn't just like Goodfellas, the TV show, that it was a family drama, that it was, you know, suburban dad with a wife that, that you know, gives him a hard time and his kids who don't understand him. And, you know, everybody could sort of find themselves a little bit in this world, you know. For sure. And, uh and so that, you know, that, you know, that everything changed. And, and by season two or three, it was like, I was just so grateful to, uh, to be a part of it and uh, continue on. The, the FBI is set up as a, as a logical low hanging fruit, sort of antagonist to uh, Tony Soprano and the Soprano crew. But agent Harris was this, um, Agent Harris was always positioned as a very likable guy from the beginning, and he's the one character in the FBI. You, some could argue about Skip as well, being being likable or having you kind of gravitating towards him. But Agent Harris in particular always... Um, you felt like he was not necessarily playing both sides, but he was a friend and he was trying to he was trying to fix the situation before it got out of control. What are your thoughts yeah. on that? And what are your thoughts on being positioned as the only likable character on the antagonist side? Yeah, it was, and it's funny because they planted those seeds early. Um, in in the first season, there's an uh, I remember I think it's the episode thirteen, it's the last episode of the season. We play the tape for Tony um, of his mother and Junior talking, basically like ordering a hit on his life. Yeah, and um, and I remember it was written into the script that there is this shot of Agent. It says we see Agent Harris's face kind of pained or something. And it was clear like that we're playing this for him. My boss, which was Frank Pellegrino, um, was being a real hard ass with Tony and really going at him hard with with uh, the interrogation where we were playing for the, this tape for him in a safe house in a basement. And it's just one quick shot, you know, of pans over to me while we're playing the tape. And Harris just thinking, how awful must this be for this guy to hear this tape of his mother and his, his uncle talking about him like this? And I remember we finished the scene. We did not get that shot. And at the last moment, uh, I think John Patterson was our director on that. God rest his soul. John said, hey, wait, 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 wait. I, I got to get this shot of Harris. I don't know if we absolutely need it, but I just want to get this shot of Harris looking sort of penny, literally swung the camera around, quick setup, and he got it, and they included it. And it sort of began a track of this guy not necessarily you know not necessarily being friendly but at least you know sort of being i always compared it to uh looney tunes where the sheepdog and wiley coyote both punch the clock every morning and then the sheepdog chases the coyote all day long you know beats the hell out of them and at the end of the night they both punch the clock and go home and that's what it felt like that these guys like i knew he knew that i was fbi i live in suburban jersey i got kids he lives in suburban Jersey. He's got kids and he's the head of a, a family, you know, and it, it really, that relationship, though, I got to tell you, it really wasn't until it seriously turned around season five that people stopped yelling at me on the street because I got a ton of shit the first three, four seasons with the show. People would see me like, hey, leave Cody alone. You know, he's a good, he's one of the good guys. I'm like, no, he's a sociopath. I mean, I was said that the FBI was there to remind people because you were being seduced by the character. Yes. You were being seduced by the way that Jimmy was playing the character because in the same way that, you know, you might find something in, in Harris that you find likable. I mean, <laughs> Tony Soprano became, you know, I, I knew tons of women that like found him sexually attractive, that, that, that loved the character, this menace that he had. This, you know, the way he held his family really tight and dear to him and everything. And I thought, 
God, everybody's being seduced by this guy that is truly kind of crazy. I mean, he's got this whole other side that would, you know, he'll choke out his, his enemies, right? You know, um, and so it really wasn't until around season five when, when the real flip came for me, when I stopped doing uh, organized crime and started doing anti-terrorism right. and started getting Tony intel that the fans really began to be like, oh, I love your character. I love how you and Tony are like friends now and you give him information and he gives you information and you, you sit at the pork store and you have an espresso and eat a sandwich. And so that to finish that way for the last couple of seasons was great because really, especially even culminating in the final episode with again, without giving much away, just having um, a great interaction. One of my favorite scenes with Tony was, I think it's in the last, it's either season six A or six B as they call them. Um, we're sitting in my car. He comes to ask me for some information and we're sitting in my car and it's snowing. We shot at a Teterboro airport and, uh, he gets in the car and he basically tells me what he wants. But in the middle of this, like sort of very serious conversation, my cell phone rings and it's my wife. And then he has the same moment where basically he's watching agent Harris talking to his wife on a cell phone going, I don't know. I don't know what time I'll be home. Just, just leave it in the fridge. I'll heat it up when I get home. I don't know what you want me to say. And Tony's just staring at him. And it's great. Cause it's like, Tony's sort of seeing like, this guy's got a life. This guy's got yeah, problems. Yeah. Everybody's got problems. And then I hang up the phone and I'm like, God damn it. What, what, I'm sorry. What were we talking about? Like, yeah, she just uh, drives me nuts, you know? And I always like that, 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 you know, like we both kind of have this, uh, the symbiotic relationship of dad's, husband's working he just happens you know circumstances have brought him to this moment and my circumstances have brought me to this moment you know yeah i love you know the late in the later season obviously one of towards the end when um, your character tells him there's some danger you need to get out of town kind yeah. of thing and, and 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 i would it's always driven me crazy why they why they didn't skip town quick enough. You know, Bobby was in the train yeah. store, and you gave you gave them in a packaged bow that there's trouble coming. Um, yeah. But they just waited a minute too long, and that that's always been like ah, it's just it, you know um, that you don't believe it until like to use a line from the show, you just don't know when it's going to happen. It just everything turns to black. It's just the way it is. Right. Yeah. That 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 scene I remember because that's that's one of those scenes where I'm sitting at the pork store yes. eating drinking coffee. And I do, I just tell him like, and he says, why are you telling me this? And right. I say, it's Christmas. Right. It's Christmas. Yeah. I'm just giving you, it's a, as you, you talk about a package and a bow. I just gave you the greatest Christmas present ever. And I, I don't, and maybe the, maybe, you know, the dragging of his feet strictly could have been, can I trust this intel from a fed? I don't know. You right. know he That's a he good really point. does look at me during the scene, like with this kind of like, really, you're giving me this kind of good information. Why should I trust this? And I'm like, it's up to you. You can trust it or not trust it, but it's a Christmas present. You know? Yeah, in the first two seasons, um, the relationship that you mentioned between Agent Harris and uh, Tony at the pork store it really takes form. You know, there's that scene where you come up with uh, it's not Grosso, but it's your, one of your other associates, and you introduce him to Tony, and you talk about the New Jersey Nets are are doing really well, and there's an accident. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and again, those little moments of humanity. It's a very sort of it seems like an inconsequential scene, but one of the things we always talk about on the podcast is how intentional everything is on the show, and that yes. right there planted the seed that there is going to be, whether or not it was going to happen, it planted the seed for there to be a long-standing relationship between Agent Harris and Tony Soprano. And it was a really cool thing to see, especially looking back yeah. on it, where the germs of all these ideas sort of take shape. Um, yeah. It's those little moments that they put in. And, and, you know, people always ask me, like, were you guys improving a lot? Would they come up with stuff on set? And I'm like, no, no, it was all scripted. Yeah. I mean, every 
um, every, you know, every these dems and those the way some, a lot of it was written in the vernacular. I said, so, you know, the, the, the show won an Emmy for writing very early on. So it became very clear, like, <laughs> unless you win an Emmy for writing, uh, nobody needs your help with this, <laughs> these scripts come in and you, you'd be lucky enough to just be good enough to do this, the, the lines, the way they're written, you know? Um, and I remember there was another, there's another scene where, uh, we're sitting, we, we got the surveillance around season three. I think we do surveillance on Tony's house. We get a bug in the house. We've got a camera in the basement. Mr. Ruggiero's and, neighborhood. Yeah. And we're looking, it's funny. Cause it's another like little moment. I remember there's a, the FBI are all sitting in a conference room and we're looking at the footage and somebody says, Oh, look at his water heater, man. It's leaking. It's like, yeah, I got a water heater like that. That's going to be expensive to replace. And again, it's just one of these little human moments that they add to the thing. Like here's five FBI guys, you know, in a typical show, this kind of conversation just does not happen. And you're sort of network procedural shows you're not going to see five guys all of a sudden talking about water heaters, you know, for a couple of minutes. <laughs> exactly. But it's one of those things in the show where like, you know, they're all of a sudden looking at Tony's basement, which is like, okay, here we go. We're inside the mob guy's basement. Like, Oh, that's a 20 gallon, man. That that's going to be expensive. Right. And that leak, I've got a leak like that too. Yeah. And you're, and you're I remember thinking like, this is crazy. Like this is probably is the sort of stuff. And I know David had friends, um, I should say on the inside, David Chase had uh, some, and we had consultants, um, some of them, I think uh, on the record, some of them off the record that were helpful, uh, both in, you know, looking at scripts and giving us behavior and, and, uh, in, you know, and, and procedure in regards to the FBI in organized crime. Cause you know, some of the stuff was just pulled right from the headlines and some of it really, whether it was sur- surveillance, whether it was, um, actual you know doing stuff kind of not by the book or by the book uh, some of that just was suggestions i think from friends of david's from people that david knew that worked at the fbi uh just in things that actual things that had happened you know um i know even oh, go ahead sorry no i was going to say even going all the way to my, my most famous line which is we're going to win this thing uh which was ripped right from the headline yeah. that was an actual line said in a court, you know, that, that, that Del Vecchio, I think, or one of these agents said, you know, about the, uh, the Jersey mob going at the New York mob, you know, and who's yeah. going to, who's going to win, win the day kind of thing. And I, my picture ended up in the, you know, like page three of the post with the line above my head and, and, and the whole article explaining how that was one of the big lines from the show. And it was actually from a transcript of federal, you know, uh, court case. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Just going back to uh, Mr. Ruggiero's neighborhood for a second. One of the f- most fun parts for me is when you're kind of orchestrating this uh, cast of FBI characters to try to triangulate where all the different Sopranos are going to be, you know, uh, yeah. Princess Bing. And, and, and then when Tony pulls the corner and he sees you and you just kind of slouch in your chair and you said, they fucking made me. It's just yeah. so, it's so classic. <laughs> um, was there any Matt Servito in Agent Harris? Um, yeah, I mean, there's always going to, you know, as they, they always say, it's like, you know, there, there's always going to be a little bit of, a uh, little bit of, you know, uh, it, it, television is not a place to get lost as an actor. I mean, I, I do a lot of theater as well, and you can transform, you can go way, way uh, far away from yourself. But in television, uh, the camera's just too close. You can't really transform too far um, and, and you know, remain believable, at least in my mind. So I, I, I always like to start with center, which is yourself, and then how far off that you're going to go. Uh, but Harris, you know, was probably more serious and more um, henpecked and sort of put upon than I am in real life. 
Um, but yeah, I always try, especially I always, if I'm doing a drama, I look for the comedy. When I'm doing a comedy, I look for the drama. Mm. And so, yes, when, when we were doing Sopranos, I was always trying to tweak a moment, um, and try to find a little humor or just a lightheartedness to a certain moment. Cause I always feel like that, that that's what happens. Like we said, the water heater discussion. I mean, those are things that happen in real life. You know, yeah. and I would say comedy, comedy isn't necessarily, especially the kind of comedy that works its way into a drama. It's not the sort of sitcom comedy, it is the real life things that, you know, happen. I mean, whether it's, um, you know, Paulie Walnuts realizing like he's got Tic Tacs in the Pine Barrens or him being paranoid of shoelaces that have germs on them or, you know, I mean, these were all real life things, including the water heater moment or me getting made and putting this dumb hat on. It's like, you know, of course. I mean, how, <laughs> how, far, do, how far does he think this is going to go? You know, I always... The one thing I'll, I'll back up, the one thing I'll say about that episode, um, w w that was sort of my coming out party with the show. That sure. was really a, an episode that established me. I, I'd sort of been on the periphery and, you know, appearing here or there. But that episode only comes about because Nancy Marchand died. Right. Um, between season two and three, she passed away. And, and that was devastating to all of us. I mean, she was such a huge price. Sometimes I wonder what the show would have been like if Nancy had lived for three, four or five more years. Cause you know, she was just, first of all, an amazing actress. Do you think she stays in the storyline if she survived, if she was alive? I don't know how you get rid of her. I mean, I just, because I know for David, a big part of it for the show was Tony's relationship with his mother. That's the kind of, you know, shit that put him in therapy. So I really think that the therapy, that triangle, that triangle of like Tony, his mother and the therapist. I think it's very David Chase and I think it's very Tony. I think it, it would have been very, very, I think she would have either become more uh, Machiavellian or more demented, kind of maybe like Junior losing her mind a bit. Um, I don't know if she would, even if, if, you know, if she wasn't able to work every episode, but we could still work Nancy in a few times here so that when you use her, you use her really well, you know, or maybe there's some reconciliation that, I think you're always, when you've got a parent like that, I think you're always looking for reconciliation and it's never coming because they're not changing and, and you're still, got, you know, as, a, as their child, always going to hold out hope that maybe we'll have a decent parent-child relationship. But, you know, she was so not capable of love. And one of my favorite all-time scenes is the wake, you know, when everybody's trying to find something nice to say about her, you know, yeah. and nobody can, yeah. <laughs> nobody can, you know. Uh, but anyways, but, so to backpedal, that's that episode, Mr. Ruggiero's neighborhood came about because they were, you know, um, reeling a bit of what to do when Nancy died because she was in those early episodes in season three. So I think that there was definitely an FBI storyline in the works, but I think that really bumped up to the A storyline for the first time ever in that in that first episode of season three because up to that point we were always interlopers, just kind of in the background reminding the audience. You know, the feds are always there, always trying to make sure, you know, trying to keep things in check and remind everybody that, oh, right, these are bad guys. You know? Right. It was extremely confident of them to to determine that, that they needed to have a storyline that that presented like a clear and present danger to Tony that wasn't his mother. And um, yeah. like you said, it was it was it came from on the heels of her passing away. But um, it was extremely well executed because it, sadly, you don't really think about Livia in that episode at all. And this in season three can kind of begin and take off without her. We get the CGI version of her in, in episode two of season three. Yeah. Um, but uh, it was strategic and it, and it paid off. I think it really worked. Yeah. 
yeah, that was I, I rem- that's what I remember when they did that CG, which of course we have to remind your listeners CGI in what am I going back to like 2000, yeah, 1999, this was 2001. Yeah. I mean, you're going 20, yeah, you're going back 20 years ago. I mean, this is not the CGI of today. Right. And it was, it was a little raw. And I remember, you know, I mean, there was a lot of sort of mixed reactions. I knew they needed to put a button on it because we had no footage. We had, I should say we had not shot anything to use up to that point uh, as as a button for her character because she got very frail and passed away quite suddenly so that all of a sudden you, you know how do you put a button on what has just been a major character sure. and the show is and the show is quickly becoming like the most talked about show on television of course by beginning of season beginning of season three we are hitting our stride and yeah. it is like it's devastating stars. and yeah and and so i mean what do you do with this and i remember they they used to premiere the show at radio city music hall for many years uh, where i just was last night took my my 12 year old daughter to see dancing with the stars tour. And we were sitting in there and I said, Oh my God, we used to do our premieres for the Sopranos in here on a giant, like three story screen of the show. And I remember they and they would always show the first two episodes. So you'd get about a two hour taste of that, of the new season. And I remember seeing that going, seeing that CGI three stories high, it looked I, I took my breath away. It worked on the small screen on television, but on the big screen, I, mean, I think we all went, oh my God, like this was a mistake. I can't, this is not going to go over well. This just doesn't look, you know, but then when I saw the air episode on TV, I thought, okay. And again, we're, we're, we're still backing up to before the HD craze. Sure. So things, things could still look a little softer on your TV now. I mean, everything is hyper, hyper clear crystal clear you know i'm, I'm forever going to be the sopranos apologist especially when it comes to production look man they they got they you were presented with an audible and you did the best you could i really thought it was graceful to give her like her, she all of the lines in that cgi are basically like her best of lines so yes. it was sort of like yeah. a it was sort of like a top 10 livia lines of the show moment and yeah. um i just recently watched that episode because we're working through season three right now and you know what 20 years later whatever it's there it holds up uh i understand yeah. like from a presentation standpoint, there's always going to be that perfectionist sort of itch to be like, oh my God, it's going to gnaw at you. But given yeah. the audible they had to call, I thought it was well executed. And the fact oh, that absolutely. the fact that Tony was able to have that last exchange with her, salute. Yeah. And that's why I'm only mentioning it because there, there is, I thought it was genius. I mean, because really, yeah. I don't think anybody had a clue as to what to do. They did have that footage and they were able to manipulate it as best they could. Yeah. And I thought, I mean, for, my only point was I was just thinking back to the day, like now you could, my God, I mean, look at what they're doing now. All you would need to do is scan her face and you could, like, as they did in, you know, Star Wars. Right, right. And you could create whole whole characters who don't even need to be alive. (laughs) Yeah. That's where we are now, you know. Yeah, no, it's crazy. It's crazy. It's, 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 they could have also run away from it, like, not even put her in and they just, they just faced, it's kind of like facing your problem, staring your problem in the mirror, so to speak. That's kind of the way I liken it to. So, um, you appeared in 24 episodes across all six seasons, including the series finale, Made in America, and some of the best episodes ever to air. Long-term parking, Whitecaps, Mm -hmm. whoever did this, Funhouse, The Legend of Tennessee Moltisanti, looking back what do you remember the most what are a couple of stories that bubble up to the surface when you know this 20th anniversary comes back anytime anybody asks you about the sopranos uh you know when you go to bed at night like what are what are some things that are always top of mind for you about this experience and journey you were on 
You know, again, it's always old. I think as you get older, it becomes less about a specific memory and more about the overall experience. Like, I just, I always tell people, like, there was never a sense of, um, which is funny because I've been on shows that were very popular, but like that had this very pomp, blown up, you know, sense of self. That show stayed so rock solid, real grounded even as it exploded in in the pop culture of America and became iconic, even while still airing. I mean, most things don't, that doesn't happen until years later, but it really, uh, by the end, had a sense of like, okay, this is kind of groundbreaking, iconic television. But the the day-to-day on the set was about what's the catering, that Kenobi (laughs) looks really good, Um, you know, uh, the... uh, you know, the sort of day to day and, and, and the work a day. And we really shot all over New York and New Jersey. So there was a sense of like going to work. The crew was very much the same guys you were seeing on the screen, guys from Jersey, girls from New York, you know, working really hard in the cold, long hours. Our crew worked their butts off. And so the, the cast never felt bigger than the crew. We love those people. We spent a ton of time with them. And there really was this sense of family and, um, I would say, like, some of the other jobs had more stories of, like, oh, my God, this one slept with that one, or this stunt went wrong, and this guy got hurt. Like, that show just, you know, I just remember, like, the long days, spending time, you know, at long conversations on set. Um, and, yeah, and, and obviously, you know, just I remember working all day in a strip club, you know, girls just not wearing any clothes, coming home, like, another rough day in the office. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, that was a scene that actually got cut. Um, it's actually in, if you, uh, God, they, they still sell DVDs uh, in the, like the box set. There's deleted scenes and there's a scene um, we shot uh, in the back room of the, of the Bada Bing, um, not intended to be the Bada Bing. They created in uh, Satin Dolls, which is a strip club in Lodi, New Jersey, that we used as the Bada Bing. They built a FBI interrogation room and we interrogated Pussy. Uh, it was after the fact it was season three. So pussy was gone, but Tony's having this obsession of like, when did he turn? How did I not see it? You know, trying to, trying to piece the whole thing together and having all these feelings about pussy. And he, uh, so there's this flashback scene, uh, where we turn big pussy, where the, the, the feds really threaten him with some serious, serious ramifications to his family, to his children, to his life. If he doesn't cooperate. And you see him break. And, it, and it, the, the tragedy is one of the best scenes Vinnie Pastore ever did. Never made it. I mean, tears, angst, anger. Wow. I mean, oh, my God. It's an incredible scene. Um, incredible scene. Matt, you're not going to believe this. I'm talking to him next today after you. I'm going to ask him about this scene. I've never even. Ask him about that scene. And what, what David and the writers realized, because every flashback that Tony was having, Tony was there. Tony was remembering, like, okay, Christmas. What I remember, you know, Pussy being a little cagey, and I'm trying to talk to him, and he didn't see him himself. Jimmy, Tony, was not in the FBI conference room. There is no way he'd be remembering this. So in his mind, I guess it's sort of like maybe he's imagining what the fe- how hard the feds would have had to come down on Big Pussy for him to turn, because he was such a team player, such a part of that team. How hard would, I mean, what would it take to flip a guy like that? And so we thought, right, maybe that's what he's imagining. But in the end, David just sort of pulled the pulled uh, plug on it. 
didn't use that scene. And it, it was, I, I really, and it's again, it's another agent heresy where my boss, um, uh, Pella, Pella, Frank Pellegrino was going at big pussy so hard. And I'm just standing on the sidelines with like my eyes kind of looking at him going, this has got to be so hard for this guy. I'm just sort of behind my boss, shaking my head going, this is, this is awful what we're doing to this guy, but we got to do it. We got to shake him down. You know, his life's falling apart before your eyes, you know? Um, Fascinating. And, uh, yeah, it's in the deleted scenes. I don't even, I don't know if it's online. I don't like these days, who the heck knows where you find stuff like that. But um, they put together like one disc. I'm trying to remember like some of the, nothing else that I was in, but the deleted scenes. There's, there might be a therapy session in there they didn't use. There might be, you know, just some of it's just interstitial, just short stuff that they, in the end, realized they didn't need. Um, but going all the way back to, to, you know, my, my overall feelings about the show, I mean, you know, there was also a sense, I, I, I've said, I've never seen a group of people and I'll, and I'll stay specific to Jimmy. I've never spent time with somebody who became famous while I was working with them. I mean, I, I, I went to school with some people, I went to Juilliard. So I went to school with some people that have become famous, become very well known Oscars, Tony's Emmys. Um, but to, but to be working so closely with somebody who season one, we could go out every night after we wrapped and just like go to any bar in New York and eh, some people might recognize him from this movie, true romance, you know, whatever, something else. But, you know, he, he, for the most part, New York character actor, and we're just eating and drinking and going home and, you know, we can still move around the city, uh, with impunity by this, I'd say halfway through season two, that's over. And by season three, it's like hanging out with the Beatles. If I'm out with, Jimmy, Tony, Vinny, and Michael Imperioli. Oh my God, I'm with I'm with the Beatles of New York. You know, everywhere we go, yeah, every place, every place. You know, and who's hanging out with us? The Rolling Stones. Who's hanging out with us? The Knicks. Who's hanging? I mean, it, everywhere we went, that you know, they wanted the Sopranos there. Any any club, any restaurant, any bar, any concert. And I I, I felt like I and like I said, I was just an interloper. I was a I was like one of those lemmings, or not even lemmings, whatever those things are that hangs on sharks, man. <laughs> oh, the suckerfish? Yes. Like, I was just holding on for dear life, enjoying the ride, because I got to experience just a few moments of that, of just like, oh my God, I'm I'm with the Italian-American Beatles, man. This is like insane. And it really continued straight to the end. And, um, you know, we had a few nights I was able to, again, participate in some of those nights in L.A., at the Emmys, and, you know, just... Uh, just enjoying, you know, the ride. And like I said, it never, but I also felt it never went to anybody's head. Everybody still worked so hard to make, and I know that continues to this day when I talk to people that are on very successful shows. It's always about maintaining that success. I mean, that's why I tell people, if you're going to, if you've not seen The Sopranos, I mean, A, lower your expectations. Because I just, I, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but I'm saying it's a television show that did a really good job. You know, but I mean, like, when, if, if somebody has built it up in your head over, oh, my God, this oh, my God, you are so lucky you've never seen it. You're going to enjoy, you know, I'm like, there are plenty of episodes, as I recall, because I used to get the emails. This is all before the textings, for the most part, of like, dude, what was that episode? What the heck was that? Ep like, yeah, yeah. the fans, people forget that now. They Because of the, the years that have gone by, there were episodes that I know the writers are frustrated you know, the actors are frustrated. The fans are frustrated. Some, some were better than others. And as you said, there's some iconic episodes, but there were definitely some times where some episodes were, did you know, the work was there, the writing was there, but just maybe the, the fans got used to those first couple seasons of this crazy ride with violence and sex and menace. 
and and tears and food and all these you know and you know it's hard to maintain this kind of, i mean look even every rock band i've ever loved has made an album that i'm like eh, or you know yeah yeah that sure I go of so course that's, and i and that's what i have to remind myself that there was definitely some episodes where we you know at least as a fan of the show because i was i mean i was just as big of a fan of the show i can tell in fact, I, I hated the shows i was that i was in because i knew the story you know? Yeah, yeah. No, the the to you just to echo the sports analogy, like you don't win every game. You know, the the Golden State Warriors yeah. are not going to go eighty two and zero, and that's no nobody's ever expecting that. But I think the cohesiveness, the totality of the series, is what kind of kinda stands alone. And and everybody's got a bat. Everybody's entitled to a couple of uh, what's the word? A couple of dogs or a couple of tomatoes oh, or whatever. Yeah, I mean, and like I said, and, but I, but I also always say, even the worst episode of The Sopranos is still better than almost anything. <laughs> yeah, exactly, you know? exactly. That's, that's what I'm I, I'm enjoying sort of with this twentieth anniversary. I've been, they had a marathon last week on HBO and good God, I own the DVDs. I could stream it anytime I want, but I'm just as guilty as anybody else. You know, you're flipping channels and there's Shawshank Redemption. You're going to stop and watch. Of course. I mean, I'm flipping channels. There's Sopranos. I'm like, okay, I'm going to stop and watch. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sitting and I, you know, I come in the kitchen. I say to my wife, still as good. I, I said, I would put that against anything right now. All the Netflix, all the Hulu, all the Amazon that is still so Mm, it's authentic to use a word. I mean, it's still just, I said, I'm looking at the characters. I'm looking at the language. I'm looking at the situations. And I said, they just tapped into something that, um, was, uh, God, what's the word? Just a, a, like a, 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 an, an explosion of, um, like a culture that had just never been, like we knew it kind of from the movies and from the TV shows. But as I said, it wasn't, that it that was just the background for what was an, a toxic family drama, really. I mean, in the end, that that to me is why it succeeds. If it had only trafficked in Goodfellas by season two, you're like, I get it. They blow everything up. They shoot all the bad, you know, the good guys, the bad guys, and everybody goes home and eats pasta. It's, it's like, a no, story no, 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 no. in many ways. In many ways, all of that is ancillary. It's a story about humanity and families and yeah. uh, parents and and their children and. Um, it's very relatable to people of all walks of life, even if you've never had anything to do with organized crime or law enforcement. Um, it's just people being people and to quote the show, the regularness of life. Yeah, exactly. And, and really, I don't think, you know, I don't want to be sexist, but I don't think we would have had the female viewers again, if it was just a mob show. And yet so many, I knew so many female fans of the show because they could see themselves in the world, in the show. They could find their way in. Because if it was just tough guys with guns, you know, not not only women, a lot of guys would be like, okay, like I said, I get it. But everybody could find themselves into the fabric of the show. Or they couldn't, and they were completely mesmerized. I think that's why it did so well overseas too. I mean, like I have met fans. That's what I love about living in New York City because, the, you know, there's so many tourists. I have met people from all over the world and they just freak out. You know, like I make their two-week trip to New York. They met somebody from the Sopranos. It's crazy. Are you Agent Harris everywhere you go? I'm lucky because I've had a very, a 30-year career. Yeah. Let, let's just say there's there's a lot of Agent Harris. But then, since then, I did a, an HBO produced show for a cinemas called Banshees, which had a nice, kind of had a good follow-up to because the... Uh, I, I should say the genre definitely falls within the the muscle of Sopranos. It's a, a thinking man's action show. So for four years, I was doing that show. And so there's, a again, a lot of Sopranos fans that found that show. Yeah. Um, and so th- there's that and Law and & Order and, 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 you know, a lot of recurring roles and Billions and Homeland. So I'm lucky. I mean, 
many of these guys, they will always be their characters. You know, I, I think I've been lucky enough. And listen, if it is just Asian Harris, I'm absolutely fine with that. I mean, believe me, I, I did an interview recently about acting and talking specifically. And I said, for the first time, I think what I'm enjoying, which I'm sure many of those guys do too, but I didn't let it in. is like, listen, as I get into my fifties, I'm like, look, it, that's such a feather in my cap. If nothing else, and I'm sure I don't expect it to, comes close to that, that's fine. Yeah. Like, I've got that. You know what I mean? It's like, what's funny is most guys, the character actors in New York, refer to The Sopranos. They don't even call it The Sopranos. They call it The Show. It's like, oh, you were on the show. Yeah, man, I love the show. You know, I tried to get on the show. But I, I, I auditioned a couple of times, but oh, it was killing me. I just wanted to get on the show. And I, I've always loved that. It's kind of like, it, it is. You, you were like, like a mob guy being made. You were a made actor to, to be on that show. You became made. And it did, like I said, you know, how many shows were at the Smithsonian? Uh, one. So it's kind of like, you know, you're, when you, when you have that kind of, um, track record and, and like I said, I just felt, you know, hashtag blessed to, to, to just even have my own little niche on it. Um, I'm like, for the first time, I guess 20 years on, I'm letting it in going, yeah, you know what, man? Like that was an amazing run, and now that it's kind of rerunning and people are finding it, streaming it, it's like it'll always be there. And I'll do other work and I'll do other stuff, but you know, it, it, it's just uh, for me. Um, I, I really am finally. Uh, and now that my kids are getting old enough to see it, that I'm enjoying that as well. I have a teenage daughter; I'm letting her watch a little bit. That's and, special. Uh, yeah, yeah, because like I said, they've heard they've heard the name, and especially we lived in Manhattan for 25 years. We've been out in Jersey for about five, six years now, and. I mean, I'm living in Soprano land now. I am, I am in North Jersey, brother. I am right I in it. the heart of it. So I love it. I love I, it. I, I, yeah, I could drive by Tony's. I can get to Tony's house in the exterior in about 10 minutes from my house. So it's a little weird to me that I've come full circle and, uh, and, and living out here. But you know uh, what? it's an okay place to be, man. You, uh, your character is timeless and will endure, like you said, for decades yeah. and decades to come. Looking back, what stands out to you the most about David Chase? Mm, the man behind the curtain. Um, you know, everyone's going to have their own, um, cause you know, uh, David, if I recall, recall correctly, directed the pilot and the last episode and nothing in between. Um, and he really was the man behind the curtain, very private man. Um, I wouldn't call him shy, but you know, he just does, doesn't like the spotlight. He's a writer, classic writer. Um, you know, and, uh, my interactions were always brief. Uh, what David has, which I've always, I always said to him, God, I would kill to do it like a sitcom with you. He has a wicked sense of humor, truly like a dark, funny, and he has an incredible laugh, which really is surprising because he doesn't laugh much. And when he does, my God, you feel like you just like found gold by making David laugh, you know? And I remember shooting the last episode that when I was shooting the line, damn, we're going to, I think we're going to win this thing. David loved that scene. He loved that line and he found it hysterical and he loved the way I played it where I just kind of say it. And then I look at my partner like, oops, I didn't, I didn't really mean to say that. Or, you know, like I, I don't, I don't mean it that way or something. And I could hear David in video village, just cracking up take after take. And I said, I remember I came over, I said, that's it. I want for, like you, the first thing you should do when this show is done is a comedy. And he hasn't, he hasn't trafficked in that world. And he's always been a very heavy, serious television writer. And I just feel like, and I know every, I don't know how many of your listeners will know. I mean, David was trying to get out of television when he wrote the Sopranos. Sure. It was a movie. 
And he pitched it as a movie and, and uh, HBO film said, yeah, we love it. Make it a TV show. I was like, no, 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 I'm done with TV. I want to get out of TV. And there he was again, being pulled back into TV, but I wish to God, you know, and since then he's done a few, you know, he did the music and he, uh, show, a movie and not fade uh, away. Looking at, yeah. And he's looking at the prequel now for Sopranos and, you know, he doesn't, Listen, he's at the age and he's got the, 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 the accolades. He doesn't have to do much. But, man, I still I know he's got a great comedy in him. And I would love even like the same way that Scorsese. I mean, Scorsese, Goodfellas is hysterical. I was just watching it the other day. And so many great funny moments in that. And David has that same kind of sardonic humor. You know, I'd, I'd love to see him, um, you know, do something like that. But that's it. I, like I said, my interaction with David was very much the table reads, the openings. I, I was, uh, you know, lucky enough to have him direct me on the final episode quite a bit because I was in that last episode a lot. Um, but I always enjoyed him. You know, we always had a good laugh whenever we saw each other. And whenever you see him now, you just pick right up where you left off, you know. But, uh, um, yeah, I, I, I'm, again, always, always grateful to him for, uh, for bringing me along. What's a memory you can share of your time with James? Oh, God. Um you know, another complex fellow. I mean, you know, that's the thing with the show that these were not typical actors. These were not typical television folk. The whole thing, top to bottom, I, I, I from the writing to the acting, I, 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 even some of the directors were more cinematic than television. And, you know, coming from the procedural world as I had and I have since then, uh, you know, this Jimmy was... Um, you know, Jimmy never did the talk shows. Jimmy never went on Leno. Uh, you know, Michael Imperioli, very private person. Edie Falco, very private person. Wonderful people, lots of personality, great sense of humor, wonderful human beings, but all of them very private. And so, they, you know, that was the thing that added to the mystique of the show was that we did not have people out there making the rounds. That, you know, that, that the networks almost require you to do now. You know, you've got to do this press stuff. Jimmy always said, I got nothing interesting to say, you know, um, which was not true. But he just it was not his kind of thing to go sit in, you know, on Ellen and talk about a television show. Um, he, he, you know, or himself, I should say, or himself. Um, incredibly selfless um, and generous. And um, he would let you in. You know, I could work with Jimmy. That, that, that was my problem also is that I was in and out of the show for years. So I would show up and be intensely there for a week or two, feel like I was getting close to Jimmy. And then I'd not work on the show for a couple months and mm. felt like I was kind of always starting over again a little bit. Hey, Agent Harris. You know, I thought it was probably season three before he actually knew my real name. Yeah. Um, you know what I mean? But by then I also felt like I belonged and I think I started them giving him, and I also realized with these guys, they like to give shit and they like to get shit on set. And once you kind of get in and start giving shit, you belong. And I think I, by season three, I was kind of like, hey, you know what? I've been here long enough. <laughs> you know, I can I can make a smart-ass comment with the best of them. And once you start busting balls, you're in. And that, that whole group just loved to bust balls. So, um, and I started spending more time, you know, with Jimmy Offset, too, as well. Sometimes um, Michael Imperioli had a place on 7th Avenue uh, bar that we used to go to called Ciel Rouge. Um, and, you know, just to be able to. Uh, have a glass of wine after work or break bread or you know, I started doing some of the press junket stuff not a lot of it but just whatever they would throw me in a, in a mix and um Jimmy's family has a, has a house down in Manasquan um New Jersey I have a house down in Lavalette at the shore at the Jersey Shore so there was a little bit of overlap there um so uh, you know but it, like I said uh very private people um 
And I'm not going to be one to pretend like that. I was really close to Jimmy or that, uh, you know, I, I, I spent a lot of time with him that that was, you know, personal, the, 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 the cast did that the main cast yeah. did, but, um, but I, but Jimmy had a way of making everyone feel like they belonged, you know? Um, and, and he would buy all of his gifts for, for rap gifts for Christmas. Um, we all have watches. He bought everybody these incredibly expensive Swiss watches when we wrapped. And I, when I say everybody, I mean like 200 of them at a, at a, at a lot of money each. Um, and gave them to every crew member, every cast member with an engraving on the back. And I wear it all the time. And I think of Jimmy and it makes me, you know, like I have a SAG award for the show, but the watch is kind of something I wear probably three times a week. And it just makes me think of Jimmy, makes me think of the show. I wear it proudly and, and nobody knows what's on the back of it, you know, except, uh, you. except those, except us, uh, those that have it. And if I see somebody else from the show, I'm like, Hey, you're wearing the watch. And we kind of all know we got the watches and we wear them and it just, you know, um, it's our thing. That's beautiful. And, and you know what? I, I appreciate you indulging that question. It's a personal question and, um, you know, uh, it's special to hear from your point of view. So thanks. Um, yeah, absolutely. I'm going to wrap up with a quick lightning round. Okay. So, um, couple of questions. You mentioned you were a fan. What's your favorite episode and why? I'm not going to know the name of the episode, um, but it's the second to last episode. Okay. Of, uh, ever of the series. I, I always say, you know, so, and, and, uh, I know this is a lightning round, but I'm just going to quickly say so much of um, attention has been paid to the last episode and that ending that people forget those last couple episodes leading up to the very last episode were spectacular. Mm -hmm. Spect I mean, that's when most of the characters, you know, main characters, things happen, big things happen and amazing scenes. And I, I, so much attention paid to this, you know, go to black moment. And I'm like, why does nobody talk about the, 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 the two episodes ago? And that last episode, I mean, there's a moment where Tony's sitting there holding a machine gun at the end of the second to yes, last episode, yes. staring at the ceiling. And I, and I think I actually read an interview again. This is where I get my information that David said that was his initial idea for the ending of the show. Just Tony in a safe house, in a wife beater with a machine gun on a rusty bed thinking, shit, this is my life now. This is it. And that's it. We go up over him and out. And that's the end. So, you know, that's, I always say like that end of that episode felt like, what are we going to, what is he going to do now? How is he going to end the show? That felt like the ending. So then you get that denouement with that, that last episode. Anyways, lightning round, go, sorry. Uh, those, no, <laughs> just, you got me actually just teary eyed, just thinking about that being the ending and how like visceral that's that final scene is in the penultimate episode. It was beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for you personally, does Tony die at the end? Does it matter? Uh, it doesn't matter, but uh, I, over the years, I definitely came to the thinking that, yes, he was dead. What are you doing these days? Uh, I'm over on Billions um, with Paul Giamatti and Damian Lewis uh, just having a blast. What a fun, ridiculous show that just with amazing characters, great writing. Writing reminds me a bit of Sopranos that we've got these amazing writers, so I'm having a blast over there. Brian Koppelman, brilliant show. Love it. Oh. Yeah. Um, besides work, what do you enjoy? What are you passionate about? What do you do with your kids for fun? Stuff like that. Um, I'm huge, huge. Uh, we've had this family beach house at the Jersey shore for over 50 years. And I am, uh, you know, as I get older, that, that place has kind of become my, um, the place I find solace, uh, and, and humor. And I, I, I go fishing, with my son, I go crabbing with my daughter. I go clamming with my other daughter. We make seafood. We, my kids all surf. Um, we, they all know how to swim really well. 
um, you know, we, we just, we spend, uh, we build fires in front of the house at the beach. Our house is right on the ocean. So it is truly, um, the Jersey shore is something I am so, so passionate about that, you know, uh, for the first time ever, I'm sort of imagining a life where I'm down there and just come off the beach to come do a, you know, a couple days on a show and go right back to sitting there reading books and fishing and trying to catch those, uh, those elusive striped bass, you know? What music is currently on your heavy rotation? Oh man, I, it's just, I just pulled all the Christmas CDs out. I'm a huge goof for Christmas music. My, I grew up with a you know, very, very uh, Irish Catholic mother and Roman Catholic father, and Christmas was huge in our house, and especially the music. And so, uh, man, day after Thanksgiving, like, I, and I still do CDs, like I still have a CD changer in the house. I bring all, I've got a lot of them. I've, and every year I expand the collection. I get on eBay and buy up old CDs. I got rid of the records because they skipped, they were scratched. But um, I just put away, because I listened to it till the Feast of the Epiphany, which is, you know, last weekend. So the music finally goes away. So that's what has been in heavy rotation. And I will listen to classical Christmas tunes, new stuff, old stuff, standards, instrumental, uh, musicals. You know, I just... I love it. I turn into a kid. My kids all love it now. So we're kindred spirits. You're preaching to the choir. I start. Uh, I my birthday's in December too. I start Christmas music in earnest, um, right around Thanksgiving, like without fail. Yeah. I, I think I even cheated this year. I think I started like a week. I, I like. I don't know why. Like all of a sudden, maybe the, one of the radio stations started early. I'm like, oh, they oh do. no, no, no. They cheat. Oh, they no. cheat. <laughs> oh, what? What's? They what's? They cheated. What's yeah. the first album you always start with? Uh, Nat King Cole. Okay. I mean, that was the, that was my mother's favorite. So the Nat King Cole Christmas uh, album is just to me makes me as I struggle with my faith over the years. Nat King Cole just makes me. It keeps you in the game. In keeps me in the game. Keeps me believing in my fellow man and Christmas and all that beautiful stuff. So the one I always start with without fail, and I don't think you can start it early enough, is the Vince Guaraldi Charlie Brown uh, Christmas. Oh. Yeah. Okay. That and, and that I, that's the cheater. Like I kind of introduced <laughs> yeah. that. Because to me, once you once you get to the pumpkin patch in yeah. October, yeah. I'm like, listen, Chris, what's next? I know we've got the Thanksgiving one, but that's not that good. We really want to get so the Vince Guaraldi. I have now downloaded. I listen to Vince Guaraldi now year round. Me too, because of the <laughs> because of the sensation of Christmas and my association with the music. His music's awesome. It is like I, I say, Alexa, play Vince Guaraldi. I, I highly recommend it to your listeners. It is just good jazz, good background music. It's some of, sometimes I just stop and listen. Sometimes I don't, and it makes me just feel good. He, he, that's what's you know. Thank God he's got the Christmas album, but he's got his own you know. Got uh, his own thing. Yeah, that that really is far exceeds the Christmas stuff. Beautiful sound, beautiful tone on the piano. Just amazing, amazing, amazing artist. Yeah. Um, are yeah. you are you reading any good books right now? Um, you know what? I've, I'm just about done with, uh, which has just been on like the bookshelf forever. A Confederacy of Dunces. Considered oh yeah, like, yeah the great American comedy comic novel. Um, I gotta say it's good. It's, it's a, it's an incredible, also I'm a huge fan of New Orleans as was uh, James Gandolfini. We love New Orleans and um, the book's all set there. They have never made a movie of it. And yet as you read it, you could picture every funny fat guy has been, because the main character is this overweight, funny guy who still lives with his mom. And you can picture Jack Black. You can picture Zach Galifianakis. You can picture Chris Farley and they've all been attached. And it's, one of these books, there's like, if you look up articles on the web, there are like Vanity Fair did a whole article about how this is one of those books that everyone says should be made into a movie and it's been cursed. I think uh, I even asked my agent to check into the rights. I thought maybe I'll try making it as an Indian. I think 
Steven Soderbergh has the rights right now. Like he had Will Ferrell attached. He had Chris Farley attached. I think Belushi was attached at one point. It just that he said there's something about this book and this trying to make it into a movie that's cursed. So maybe it should always just be a book, you know, kind of thing. So mm. fascinating read. I highly recommend it, but um, not an easy to get through because he has these long diatribes that are just nuts, nuts. The main character's nuts. Matt, this has been an honor and a privilege. Thank you so much. The pleasure's been all mine. Thank you. Thank you.